Welcome to One Hour Intern. I'm your host, Will Brigger. Today, I have the pleasure of sitting down with the legend, Mr. David Foster, the hitman. David has been behind some of the most iconic pop songs ever released. He's written almost 50 top 20 songs with artists like Whitney Houston, Celine Dion, just to name a few. He has 16 Grammys, an Emmy, a Golden Globe, and has been nominated for three Oscars. David, thanks so much for being here today. Pleasure, Will. It's nice to see you. So just to get started and add some context about you, you've worked with some of the most successful female artists in the world. Right now, who's a brand new artist that no one knows about or is particularly small that you wish you could work with or you think is up next? Great question. And uh, I try to stay involved. I try to try to stay somewhat current, semi-relevant. There's a young girl that's on Warner Brothers named Emily Wiseman, and she has a song right now called Dumber. Both my wife and I love it, and we love her, and we have no real connection to her, but I think that she's uh, going to be up to bat. She is up to bat. I think she's going to eventually hit the fences. And it's exciting because she's young. She's from Nashville. She's got a quirky side to her, and her lyrics are amazing. Every word that comes out of her is semi-profound, not the usual dribble that you hear. So we're excited about her. Now, before you were David Foster, the person who could pick the greatest artist out of the haystack, you were just a normal kid. So let's go back to your childhood. What were you like as a kid? Well, fortunately, I have six sisters, so I can always count on when we get together, me asking questions like that. Because of course, you know, it was a long time ago that I was a child. If I had to pick one word, I was driven. So by age 10, I knew that I wanted to do music for a living. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know where that would take me. At the time, I probably thought, you know, playing in a band at the local nightclub would have been the end of it. But I knew I wanted to do music. So by age 10 or 11, I would beg my parents, my father, to go pick up a drummer and bring him over with all his equipment. And we'd just jam in the basement or just play in the living room to drove everybody nuts. But that's all I wanted to do was make music. By the time I was 12 and 13, I had put a band together and I was playing at weddings and dances and actually making more money than my father at age 13. Let me stop you. You said you were super driven and you knew music. Was there a particular moment where you decided this is what my future is going to be? I mean, there is always a pivotal moment. You know, I was a classical geek. I was studying classical music, which I didn't love. I appreciated it, but I didn't love it. The pivotal moment for me was when I heard the Beatles on the radio, which is obviously a long time ago, more than 50 years ago. And when I heard She Loves You by the Beatles, that was it. I was like, I want to do that. Whatever that is, that's what I want to do. And I was 13. And what about that song got you going? It's... Just the, the chords were just a little bit different, a little bit new, a little bit nuanced. And I just never had heard anything like that before. And I wanted to be part of it. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. When you were 13, you were playing weddings and you were making more money than your family. Can you talk a little bit about that and what that role was like? My family was, um, we weren't poor, but we didn't have any money. And stupidly, and I regret this to this day, when I started making money, $20, $40, $90 on a New Year's Eve, which is a ton of money back then, stupidly, I didn't give it to my parents who could have really used the money. Seven kids, my father made $90 a week. And stupidly, at 13 and 14, you just don't, or at least I didn't think about the fact that I could have really helped my family out. And to my parents' great credit, they never asked for the money. I used to leave my money on my mother's dresser when I'd come home from a gig. And she would borrow from it once in a while, but she'd always tell me, and then she would always put it back. But I can only hope 
that sometimes she didn't pay it back. That would be my great hope. But, um, you know, just kids, man, we don't know what we, you know, if I knew then what I know now, I would have done it differently. You know, that's a pretty special or different relationship with your parents. Were they still able to have a parently role in your life and teach you some specific values that were really important? Absolutely. And I realize now that the chain of command and the chain of teaching, it carries on. You know, I never drank or did drugs because my father and mother did. And so I never wanted to disappoint them. They were strict, but they weren't horrible. And I never did any of that because I didn't want to disappoint them. And then in turn, my children, my daughters, have never had a DUI. They've never, I I know they drink, obviously, I mean, they're in their 30s now, but they never got arrested. They never got drunk and disorderly and they never did drugs for the most part. I mean, I'm sure there was some weed spoken and, but you know, the, the change just kind of carries on and you learn from your parents, you parents set the example. And my parents set a great, great example for me without being preachy about it. And I learned, and maybe if this is the first lesson that anybody is watching might want to write this down or take it in, the road to success is not curved. The road to success is an absolute straight line. And every time you go here or go there, you're off the road. And that's, and I think that's, you know, drugs and drinking and partying. I mean, obviously when you're a kid and you're a teenager, you want to have fun. I didn't have a lot of fun. I just wanted to work and make music, but having a little fun is is no problem. But when you go off the straight road, if you really want to get there, quote unquote, the road is straight, it ain't curved. And if you're not working Saturday or Sunday, somebody else is. So it's not a hobby. It's not, you know, being successful is not a hobby. It's a full-time job. That means seven days a week to the exclusion of everything else. It seems like your life was kind of a paradox of that straight line because you had so many twists and turns throughout your early teens. In 13, you enrolled in a University of Washington music program. And then by 15, you were playing live shows already and you were kind of jumping around from place to place. Can you talk about what that meant to be on the straight line for you? I would argue that, or or you might have indicated that means I wasn't on a straight line, that I did go here and I did go there. But to me, it always felt like a straight line. Whether I'm playing a bassoon with uh, college kids when I was 13 at the University of Washington, which was thrilling for me to finally be with people that were better than me and that I could learn from, or playing at a wedding at age 15 and watching a bunch of people get drunk and come home and slobber on me and go, hey, do you know this song? Do you know that song? To me, that was always part of the straight road. It was not part of the curve. As young people, you have to find your way. You have to seemingly go off the road, but you should never really go off the road. I don't drink and you shouldn't drink and you shouldn't do drugs. It sounds preachy. And I don't mean it that way. Kids, young people, adults, guys like your age, women, you're going to have fun. There's no law against it and you should have fun. But Wayne Gretzky, the great hockey player, his, his father told him and Wayne told me, he said, my father said, play hard as a kid, you're going to work hard as an adult. Work hard as a kid, you'll play hard as an adult. And that's so true. So I worked really hard as a kid and it allowed me to play hard as an adult. For a lot of kids, even myself, that's a super hard mentality to get to. I mean, it's you want to play hard and not work hard. How did you make it so that you were on that work hard path? I guess I, you know, I had a God-given gift and I'm not an overly religious person. In fact, many people disagree with my evaluation of talent. I say to you that I believe everybody's given the same amount of talent, just manifests itself in different ways. A lot of people disagree with me. They say, no, you're chosen. You're one of the chosen ones. No, I'm not. 
my gift came in the form of music. Your gift might come in the form of being a scientist or being a great interviewer, and you'll go on to be the next Charlie Rose or the next whoever, Katie Couric, or that might well be your gift. You're very good at it. I don't think that gift is any different than my gift. I really don't. And, you know, if you take in the deepest part of South America or the African continent where they don't have any communication or whatever, there's probably the next Whitney Houston in there somewhere or the next Charlie Rose. And unfortunately, because of geography, they won't get the opportunity to find out whether they really are the next Charlie Rose or not. So I believe everybody's given the same gift. So to answer your question, this gift propelled me and it gave me the discipline and the desire to want to expound on it and make it as great as I can. And we'll talk a little later about greatness, being good and being great. I tried to be good every day. At a certain point, something happened, and then I tried to be great every day after that. Another turning point in my life. So back to your family life, were there any particular moments that stood out as really valuable in shaping you later in the future? Well, so for better or worse, my relationship with my father was always parent and child. And there was only one moment in my life where it became friend to friend. When I was 18, or 17 and 18, I was playing all night in clubs. And I wasn't up to no good. I just would stay out all night because after the gig ended at one in the morning, then we'd all sit around and jam till four o'clock in the morning, just making music, making music, couldn't get enough of music, making music. I was not up to no good. I wasn't doing drugs. I wasn't doing crazy stuff. Deep down, I think my parents knew that. They trusted me. I didn't realize the hardship I put on my parents. And this is maybe something for your listeners to pay attention to. I didn't realize that they would stay awake waiting for me and lose sleep worrying about me being out because there was no cell phones or anything. It didn't even occur to me that I might be worrying them, right? So this one time I came home at like quarter to six in the morning after playing all night. And my father was up because he was ready to go to work. And I thought, oh man, this is going to be like terrible. He's going to yell at me and he's going to like, what are you doing? And I walked in, he was up in the living room. And instead of yelling at me, he just quietly said, so you really like this music thing, right? And I said, yeah, I really do. He said, you know, it's really a difficult business I hear. And all of a sudden he's talking to me like an equal and it's just really shocking me. I said, yeah, I know, but I really think that I got what it takes. I mean, you know, you gave me piano lessons and, you know, I've done this, I've done this, and and I I just can't see any other life for me other than making music. And he said, well, I think you can probably do it then. And that was it. And then he went off to work and three months later he died. And it was the only adult conversation I had with him, but it obviously resonated and stayed with me so far my whole life, you know, it was just such a great pivotal moment for me that I had the blessing of my, of my father, you know? Yeah. Wow. Having respect from people in your life like that definitely can be a catalyst for so much as you are an example of. Yeah, for sure. So as I mentioned before, you went to a music program at university of Washington when you were 13, that's a college program to study music and you're a 13 year old kid. How do you make that step, that big risk to go to college? Well, it wasn't really going to college. It's a little bit misleading. A a great band instructor who was great to me up in Victoria, British Columbia, where I grew up, he fought for me to get into this program. The great thing about it was that I was surrounded by people that were as good or better than me. And I had grown up on this island where I was like the big hotshot, always winning all the festivals and the, you know, this classical music I'm talking about. 
And now I was, you know, everybody was as good as me or better. So it was a great feeling. And that's the only way you can get better is by being around people that are better than you. And you look at it, you go, wow, I, I want to be able to do that. I got to work a little harder. So it was a great experience. But that leads me to talk a little bit about mentors, which I know your program is a lot of, it's, it's all about that. I urge young adults to find that person, to seek out that person. Uh, if they don't find you, hopefully they find you. So for me, it was a couple of band teachers. And school band, as nerdy as it is, and don't try to tell me that it's cool because it isn't cool. Being I was in the school band. band. I was in the school well, you're not. Well, you're a nerd then. Maybe. No. I don't know. Maybe it's cooler now, but it wasn't cool back then to be in the band. But being in the band, I forged this relationship with two different band leaders. And they really propelled me into believing that I could do it. Even though they weren't in the business per se, they were school teachers. But they saw that thing in me. And the one teacher would, you know, jam with me, make music with me after school hours. He'd bring his saxophone out. And, and then after school, they became humans instead of teachers. And we would just play music. And we had, we were on equal ground at that point. And it was really great. And plus I had some other great music teachers too. So whether it's sports, you find that coach that'll just believe in you or whatever it is, I, I, I really know that it helped my life. And I'm hoping that the people that are listening right now can find that mentor in their lives. Uh, it's so important. I mean, you got to work at it. Uh, you can't let them down. You got to like be all you can be and then some. Yeah. Otherwise, they'll just Absolutely. move on. In that story, you had mentioned that at University of Washington, you were around people who were better than you or on par with you. And that was a new idea. What do you think that that did to you? It just simply promotes growth. And I mean, how can I make an example by piano? If you're just sitting for five years going, and everybody's telling you you're great because you can do that, but nobody's telling you you should go like this. Nobody's telling you that you can do that, which I didn't do very well just then because I haven't done it in 30 years, but then you'll just stay Maybe you need to go back. Yeah, well, I think it's too late for that. (laughs) I never was a great piano player, honestly. In fact, not to digress, but I'm so thankful that I wasn't a great classical pianist. And I'll tell you why. Because I was good, but I wasn't great. And if I had been great, right now, I would be number 400 in the world. Because the top 400 classical pianists are fucking amazing, right? A hundred times better than me. So if I was great, I would be number 400 right now. And I'd be struggling to make 25000 a year. Not that money is everything, but you have to survive. You have to live. And I have a couple of great friends who are amazing classical pianists. And they really struggled just to put food on the table. So thankfully, I was good, not great. So you did make this transition from being a classical musician to being more of a jazz and a pop musician. You were playing in Edmonton, and then you were in Toronto when you were 16. And then in 17, you were in a band in London backing up Chuck Berry. What did all the live music experience have, or what effect did the live music experience have on you? It didn't have as profound effect on me as it probably should have. Because if you notice the rest of my career, I ended up going into a cubbyhole in a studio and making music by myself or just with a couple of musicians, but not really playing live. So it didn't have a lasting effect on me. But what it did do is it exposed me to different kinds of music. So if you can imagine a classical nerd getting a job with Chuck Berry at age 16 playing three chords. So I went from... uh, 
to uh, music that I actually hated. So poor Chuck Berry, we didn't get along at all because I didn't like his music. I didn't know anything about his music. And he didn't like the way I played it because I was too educated. Years later, I've learned how profound his contribution was to music in those simple three chord songs, Roll Over Beethoven and Maybelline. And, you know, he heavily influenced the Beatles. I didn't know that at the time. And it took me years to realize that you can't be a musical snob. You have to love everything if it's good. You have to try to love everything. You have to try to understand everything. Do you think that goes beyond music or is that something that's specific to music? I think it's, you're absolutely right. It goes way beyond music. It's everything in life. It's in politics. It's like, okay, well, I'm a raging Democrat, but wait a minute. What that Republican guy said is actually sort of makes a little bit of sense. Maybe I should just listen to that. Yeah, I think it's in every walk of life. Yeah. So you said you were in Chuck Berry's band or back up to Chuck Berry's band, but when you had gone to London, you were intending to be a star. What was it like to not make it to where you wanted to be? You know what? That's probably one of the best questions I've ever been asked. Good job, man. You're going to get good at this. You are good at this. It was disheartening. In fact, London, when I was 16, 17, and 18, became the loneliest time of my life. The band I went there with broke up. The jobs dried up. And I sat there for a year going on auditions and trying to audition for rock groups. But like I said, I was too educated musically to really be in a rock group. And I just spent a year with no money sitting, practicing, waiting for a break, trying to audition for kids' TV shows, anything I could to work, but nothing, literally nothing, nothing happened. So it was a, it was a really crappy time. I suppose it was a growth period. It was a learning experience. But to answer your question, it really sucks to not be propelling yourself forward. I was going to say it sucks not to be successful, but that's just a bit of a stretch and doesn't really answer the question. It sucked to not be part of the scene and not be moving forward with my career. And so how did you move forward? How did you decide it was time to make the jump, come home, move to LA, make a change and try and move forward? I guess that that drive, you know, not something you can bottle. It's not something you can buy, but it is something that's inherently in some people and inherently not in somebody, people. I just came back and regrouped, you know, and I thought, okay, well, London's not for me. Rock and roll's not for me. Clearly, at that time in the 60s, late 60s, mid 60s, it was Pink Floyd, who I love. It was The Who, it was Zeppelin, it was Hendrix. It was, and I clearly was not part of that wrecking ball at all. And so I just had to adjust. And when I got home to Canada, I started flushing out my own particular skills and what my contribution might be. So you were 17 in 1966. Star Trek had just debuted. The Beatles were one of the biggest bands at the time where you're getting your inspiration. Gas was 32 cents for the gallon. Prior to this and up until this, what was one of the biggest struggles that you faced? Prior to that, I just didn't feel like I was struggling at all. I feel like I was just moving forward. I felt like like my home life was great. My parents were great. My sisters were and still are amazing. I didn't feel like I had any real struggles. You know, I started working, like I said, at age 12, 13, making my own money. And um, probably the biggest struggle I've faced was when my father died at 18, because you don't know what you have until it's gone, right? Even though, he, you know, with seven kids, he had to spread himself really thin. 
he still made time for all of us. And so just like I said, as I was getting to that adult conversations with him, he was gone. So I never had that, nor could I pay him back, you know, which I was able to do for my mother because she lived until 10 years ago, which is a great feeling. And I, and again, to your audience, I would say one of the great things that propelled me and every other successful person that I know of that I've talked to is going to buy my mom a house, going to buy my mother a house, going to buy my parents a house, going to make them put them on easy street for all they did for me. It's such a great driving force, man. You can't underestimate that driving force. And it's literally as simple as I'm going to buy my mother a house. You see it with, with hardcore rappers, you know, that may have a criminal background, right? They come out, what are they going to do? What are you going to do when you get that big check? I'm going to buy a Ferrari and I'm going to buy my mom a house. Yeah. On the note of death and, you know, loss in life, is there any advice you would give to people who are struggling with something like that? I have a couple of pieces of advice. Yes. You have to be prepared for people around you that love you and that you love, that people are going to say the wrong thing. And it always happens. And so mourning the loss of your mother or your sister or your brother or your father or whatever, and somebody who's trying to make you feel better come along and go, hey, Will, but, but you know, she was great while she was here. I mean, like, she lived a good life or whatever. They're going to say some dumb shit. The reason why I know this is because when my father died at the funeral, his sister, really great woman, came up to me and said something really dumb. I don't even remember what it was. Oh, yeah, she said, aren't you going to introduce me to your friend? Pretty innocuous, right? She's just trying to make conversation. I hated her from that moment till the day she died unfairly, I might add. So the piece of advice is be prepared for people to say stuff that's going to rub you the wrong way. Don't hold it against them. And on a broader scale, I like to say that the pain turns into memories and the memories turn into lessons. Yeah. So I mean, if you've lost your parent, the pain is excruciating. It turns into memories, bad memories, or painful memories, then memories. And then those memories turn into lessons, which you can draw on for your entire life. I mean, I think that I definitely haven't experienced a lot of death or suffering yet, but hopefully never. But I think that those two messages become, are way more powerful than just with death and kind of relate to everything. The pain of every failure is also going to be a memory that will help you later. Would you agree with that? I do, absolutely. And you know, Will, it's interesting that they say you can escape. There's only two things you can't escape, which is death and taxes. Well, you can't escape taxes if you're criminal or you're super smart or whatever. So the only thing, the only inevitable thing is death. And strangely, as smart as we are as humans, it's the thing we're always least prepared for. Maybe in future generations, they'll get their head around it a little better. Moving from a bit of a darker note, let's move to the segment called the coffee break. I'll just ask you, tell a funny or embarrassing story rather than something super serious. Is there any story that comes to mind? This is not particularly a funny story, but it's a very important story. I was producing and writing with Madonna in the early 90s, and she was very, very professional. You know, a lot of singers that I work with, not a lot, but some of them want to be a co-producer just because they can. They can flex their muscles and go, yeah, I want to be the co-producer. And I'm like, no, you can't be the co-producer. That's my job to be the producer. You're already the singer, the artist. You're on the front of the cover. You're going to go out to millions of people. Let me just have my credit, please. Madonna asked for the, demanded the co-producer credit. And I reluctantly said yes, but she's 
actually was a real co-producer. She was there every second of every day, standing over me, helping me, helping me make the choices. She was really amazing. But this was right around the time that she made her movie, Truth or Dare, which you won't remember because you're too young. But it was a very controversial documentary about her life. And um, she said, I really want you to watch my movie. So she gave me a copy, probably a tape. I don't know. And she said, go home, please, and watch it. I really want to know what you think about it. So I watched it that night, came in, and she was almost like a little uh, rabbit, like waiting or panting dog, like, well, what'd you think? What'd you think? And I said, well, I thought it was really good. I said, I, I don't really like the way you handled my friend Kevin Costner from The Bodyguard. He came to visit her show, and she was mean to him. And it was on the, it was right in the documentary. And she said, yeah, I know. I probably shouldn't have outed him so much. It was kind of mean to me, but, it, you know, it was real life and whatever. She said, what else? I said, well, the only other thing I didn't like was when you filmed those two guys kissing. And she went off on me like, that's the problem with the world. That's the problem with people like you. You're too square. You don't get it. You know, this is what I'm fighting for. And she just went on a, on a rant. And she was absolutely right. And I was wrong. So I, I learned a very valuable lesson. It's not a funny story. It's not an amusing story. But it's a very truthful story about my ineptness and my inability to understand what's going on in 1992. And after learning that lesson from Madonna, were you able to move forward and act in a more progressive and more appropriate way? Well, I don't think overnight I did, but it's obviously stuck with me. And look at the world we're in now in 2020. It's, it's acceptable, but it's still not completely acceptable. So uh, sure. I think I've come further than a lot of the world has. So now that you've said, told that story, let's move back to the story, that our, our internship. Is there one moment that you see as your big break, not necessarily the turning point in your career, but the moment where you realized you could have a turning point, you could be a success, you could be the star you are today? Yes, there is. And it'll be a fairly insignificant moment for you and for your viewers. But the objective in life, I think, to be successful is to set the goal line, and then you have to keep moving the goal line because you get to your goal, right? That's, that's the objective, I think. So for many, many years in the 70s, I set my goal line to work with a group named Earth, Wind & Fire. Earth, Wind & Fire were like it for me. Like they just, because they were R&B, they were jazz, they were rock, they were pop, they were black, they were white, they were everything. They knew no boundaries on anything. No musical style, no racial style. They... they they just were the greatest group ever, in my opinion. So I set my sights on working with Earth, Wind, and Fire. And that day came six years after I had said I wanted to work with them. And it was just a great, great moment for me to sit in that room with that band, play my song, and have them go, we want to record that song. And it started a great two or three album relationship with them that has stood the test of time with some great songs. And it was my greatest personal victory, I think certainly doesn't won't jump out to the people watching right now as anything amazing but the lesson would be you know set the goal reach it and then move the goalpost and i certainly after i reached that goal i i moved the goalpost immediately okay well i've done this now and to think that i could actually get to work with earth wind and fire was just kept me up at night may i ask you a question where's your goalpost what? set right now with regards to this project or just in general life to be able to decide what my goalpost is what i want my concrete goalpost because this project is a way for me to 
me to find a goalpost, you know, set a goal, learn about the world. And so my goalpost is to find the goalpost I want to work for. That's a great answer. What about your contemporaries? Um, You're 17 or 18? 17. 17. What about your contemporaries? Are they as active as you? Are they as desiring as you and wanting things out of life? I mean, not everybody has a talk show. I like to give a lot of credit to my peers. I look around and I see people working their asses off, whether it's at their sports or at the newspaper or any host of things like that. But I think most people are really focused on getting into college right now. And that's running people's lives. I can't say it's not running mine. Even though you don't even know what that really looks like right now, right? Getting into college. No, not at all. Obviously, you have created, after you set your goalpost for Earth, Wind & Fire, you've made it seem like your goalpost has been to own the music industry. You have so many accolades, so many awards, and you know, someone can go listen to your documentary to figure out about those. But what I'm interested in is your creative process, how you've made those awards. What goes through your mind? And what's your process like? Well, I had a lot of help. I did very few songs on my own. I had co-writers and, of course, the artist. And many times I had a movie. So just to break it down a little bit, if you were to ask me to write a song right now, first of all, I don't write top 40 songs. So even though I hang out with Charlie Puth a little bit and I've Hung, I, I'm in Drake's latest song, a nice little shout out, but I'm not, I can't make top 40 music and, and I make no bones about it. But that aside, writing is still writing. So if you were to say to me right now, write a song. Okay, well. Whatever, right? That comes from nowhere. Sounds like you were playing Let It Be at first. <laughs> it could be, right? Yeah, the first two chords for sure. And thanks for busting me on that. So that comes basically from nowhere. So if it's whether it's good or bad, it's coming through you and not from you, right? Yeah. Now, tell me, I want you to write a song for my movie. And in this particular scene where I want the movie to play, this man who is madly in love with this girl has just inadvertently turned the corner and seen her kissing somebody else. He had heard the rumor, but he didn't believe it to be true. And now accidentally and inadvertently, he sees it with his own eyes. Then that gives me a lot of ammo to go. Or whatever, I mean, that's bullshit. But, you know, it and gives me a mood and it gives me something to write about. You didn't prepare that before. Because it seemed like no. a very detailed, specific moment that you were ready no. for. No, not at all. In fact, it was a piece of shit. I, let, me do, let me try one more time. Because I can do better than that. No, it's okay. I can't do better than that. Okay, well, anyway, you get the idea. So a lot of songs that I've done for movies, I've gotten a lot of help from the director, from the movie itself, you know, where you have this visual. And it, the movie becomes the co-writer. And that's the process for that. When you have a blank page, you just got to start with nothing. It's really hard sometimes. That's why I have co-writers. And so I'll sit and I'll go. And I have a singer here who hears that and jumps on it and starts singing over it for me and doing half the work for me. In that creative process, you know, in that struggle of trying to make a hit song or just trying to make a song in general, has there been one song in particular that you 
felt really passionate about, you put all your effort into, and it just didn't make it? About 800 times. Yeah. I mean, I've written probably a thousand songs, and easily 800 of them for sure were not hits. And at least 400 of those 800 were terrible songs. So, yeah, I mean, specifically, because it's a question that, that I think all songwriters get asked a lot. What's your favorite song? What's the song you thought would be a hit and it wasn't? What's the song that you didn't think would be a hit and it would be a hit? And they're hard questions to answer because we don't give it a lot of thought. But I did write this song called Man in Motion for the movie St. Elmo's Fire. Rob Lowe and Demi Moore. And I wrote it with my friend John Parr. And I really never thought it would be a hit. And the sucker went to number one. Like, not number two, not number six, but number one. All over the world. Yeah. It was a huge hit. I didn't think it would be one. What about kind of the opposite side where you release a song and you get a lot of criticism for it? How do you deal with the reviews against your creative work and something that you put your heart and soul into? That leads to the word rejection, right? And again, for anybody watching, rejection is just the toughest thing to deal with in any business. I don't think it's more prevalent in the music business or the, I mean, I think about actors, you know, going on an audition and they stand up there and they, okay, go ahead, please. Um, then the man said, okay, thank you. It's like, I didn't even get started. Uh, no, it's just, it was great. It was great. Thank you very much. We'll call you. And you know, you don't get the part. It's horrible. The rejection. I, I have a daughter who was an actor before she turned into being a really great writer. And the rejection level was just insane. You go on 30 auditions to get one bit part on CSI or whatever. So uh, what was your question again? How have you dealt with like reviews and criticism of your yeah, work? Right. You know, you're always told that you, if you don't believe the good stuff, then you don't have to believe the bad stuff. So you should never read anything about yourself. But it's, it's impossible. It's human nature to pick up the paper. And, and then when you read great stuff about you, you go like, wow, yeah, I'm really great. Then you read one bad thing about yourself and you go, that guy's an asshole. But he's not an asshole. It's just his opinion, you know? And my music in particular is hated by so many, like, because my music's soft. I call my music pussy music. It's soft music. And I mean, Rolling Stone would rather gag than listen to one of my songs. They've said it. I'm the, I'm the king of schlock. And then in fact, I did this album with a great artist named Boss Gags. And he was very much loved. The critics loved him and the people loved him. And everybody thought I would take him down the tubes. And we had a successful album. The Rolling Stone reviewed the album. And this is what they said. David Foster has succeeded in plunging the dagger in Boss Gags's back. And the blood is all over his white suit. <laughs> Why do I remember that 30 years later, 40 years later? Because it was so hurtful. And that's what the guy thought. Hurtful. But part of the package, I guess. And any advice to bouncing back from criticism like that, accepting that some songs are going to suck, some people aren't going to like your work? Well, I mean, the greatest revenge is success, I think. I know that's yeah. kind of uh, shallow, but that's the greatest revenge is like, well, you may have think I plunged the dagger in his back, but it sold 3 million copies. I'm not interested in selling two copies. I'm not interested. You know, Celine and myself, we were selling... 25 million copies per album for two or three albums. Whitney Houston, the I Will Always Love You that I did with her, became the love song of the century. Some people hate it. They think it's so corny that she sold out and whatever. But uh, I mean, I'm not interested in the 
critics loving me and the people not loving me, which comes to your earlier question, which is how do you discover talent? And I haven't really done that much of that. I've discovered, you know, four or five artists in total. So not a great track record, but I've always maintained that, that I'm average because when I heard Celine Dion for the first time, I was like, God, I think, I think everybody's going to love this voice. Now, if I was an elitist, I'd be like, oh, she's too whatever, you know, I'll be like, stick my nose up at it. Um, I think I'm the common man when it comes to listening to a singer. I hear somebody and I go, millions of people are going to love that. Not three people, not interested in three people. You know what I noticed also, Will, and I haven't adhered to this rule in this interview, but I've spoken a lot at colleges over the years, mostly music classes, but sometimes not just a music class. What I've noticed about most young adults, they don't really want to hear me get up there and go, and then I wrote, and then I got a Grammy for this, and then look at me, and hey, hey. They just really want to know how they can do it. They're not interested in my credits. If you've got some information, but I don't give a shit that you sold 25 million copies with Celine Dion, I want to know how I can sell 25 million copies or how I can do this. So I've sort of done a lot of talking about myself today, but that's your fault. I mean, what can I say? I want to learn how, <laughs> how I can be the next you. But in your field. Yeah, exactly. As we come to a close, I just want to zoom out and ask you, are there any or is there one or two particular failures in your life that really stand out as influential to David Foster now? Nothing that you would be able to go, oh, I remember that. Well, you wouldn't remember because it was a failure. But one that always is stuck at me, and it's fairly insignificant, because here's the thing. When you're making music or anything else in life, you apply the set of principles and tools that you know, right? So I produce an album for so-and-so, and it's a big hit. I go into the next album, it's a big hit. I produce, you know, I have three in a row, four in a row, whatever, and everything's flying great. And then you apply all those same principles and tools to album number five, and it bombs completely. And it really is a head-scratcher. It's like, it really makes you insecure, because you're like, I did everything that I did on the Seal album, and everything I did on the Chicago album, everything I did on the whatever, and, and now I tried on this one, and it, you know, it didn't work. It's like, really, really confusing. Uh, it's like, you know, knowing that the color blue is blue, and then all of a sudden you find out it's green. So that's confusing. And there was this one album that I did in the 80s, albeit she was an unknown singer, but she was the background singer for Eric Clapton. Her name was Marcy Levy. Really great singer. And I poured seven months of my life into that album. And not only was it not successful, but the record company at the end of seven months said, this album's so awful, we're not even going to put it out. And this is after I had just done Shaka Khan and Kenny Rogers and the group Chicago and Earth, Wind & Fire and had a ton of credits and had a lot of success. So uh, that one sticks out for me as really, to the, obviously, 30 years later, I'm still thinking about it. Yeah. And then despite this failure, you're still David Foster and you've reached the pinnacle of success in the music world. What's the next step in success? I mean, you started a a charity and you're working on other projects, I assume, but what's the next step? Back up just for one second. You say I've reached the pinnacle of success, but I would argue with you, Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, I think that I'm great. And Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays, I think that I suck and I haven't done anything. And that's the God's honest truth. What about Saturday? Oh, I'm, I'm, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, I think ah. that I suck. Sundays, I try not to think about it or something like that. I'm, I'm being metaphorical, but I really do think that I'm a a huge colossal failure sometimes 
And that, you know, is this my life? Really? It's like, and wrap up my life in 16 Grammys. Is that it? Really? And maybe that's one of the keys to being successful. I don't know, but it's, it gnaws at me all the time that I haven't done enough. There's more to do. And, you know, I'm working on some musicals now. I want to crack Broadway. It's hard now with COVID, extra hard because Broadway's closed for at least another year. I press away. I write remotely with, uh, other people, I'll be, I have a writing session tomorrow on this one musical. It's not a Broadway musical yet. And I would like to crack Broadway. Because on Broadway, you don't have to write a top 40 song. You just have to write a good song. And I think I'm still capable of doing that. But the overall thing that I'd like to say about it is that I many times don't feel like I've been successful. And that's just the way it is. How would you define that success? Like, what is success to you? Well, I mean, you could say that that's success. Couldn't you? Yeah, definitely. It's really just only one definition of success. You know, because after you win a Grammy or lose a Grammy, the next morning you get up and put your pants on just like every other day and you go to work. So, I mean, given the choice, I'd rather have them than not have them. But it also is my life flashing in front of me every time I sit at this piano. I actually put them away for about a decade. I put them in a closet for a decade because I just got tired of looking at them. I got tired of the feeling that it gave me. What would make you feel successful, feel like you've accomplished a lot? Well, those are two different things, don't you think? I feel like I've accomplished a lot. And I do feel successful certain days. And then on the days I don't, I I think maybe it makes me still work hard. You can get so complacent. You can get so complacent about anybody in any line of work can get so complacent. It's something that I don't like. I haven't been in the studio for four years, purposely, thankfully, because I, I got tired of my own shit. I got tired of the way I put chords together. I got tired of the way I recorded the drums. I got tired of everything about me. I got bored with myself. Yeah. So I think that, you know, champions know when to walk away, even if there's more Super Bowl rings to be had. I mean, that's definitely a, a hard decision to make, but... I feel like you're definitely right. It hasn't been difficult at all. I don't miss it at all. My philosophy on that has always been like, better leave the music business before it leaves you. Okay, well, now you can ask your five uh, one-word answer questions. So your answers might be different tomorrow or even in an hour from now, but for now, they're just sort of knee-jerk. The first question is probably not going to work for you because you're too young, but I'm going to try it anyway because you're an old soul and you're very bright. So you may be able to answer it. If you can't, then I'd like you to give me a substitute for your generation because I'd, like I'd like to be armed with that. First question, Beatles or Stones? Beatles. Wow. Okay. So could you give me a suitable question for your generation that maybe don't know the Beatles and Stones? I would say that if you don't know the Beatles or the Stones, you don't deserve to be asked the question. <laughs> well, I... That's a, that's a good answer. I was trying to think of, like, who would it be? Would it be Justin Bieber and Selena Gomez? Would it be U2 and, and Coldplay? I, I, I can't come up with anything as iconic as Beatles and Stones. I'd like to know, for people that don't know the Beatles and Stones, I'd like to know what they think their Beatles and Stones are. Okay. okay. Second question, Desert Island CD. And I know that there's no CDs anymore, but it can't be a playlist can't be something you manufactured. It can be a greatest hits, but it has to be a CD. 
for the rest of your life. And in your case, that'll be probably 90 years. You got to play the CD and only the CD. Wow. One CD. And don't give me two. Like I said, Can I pick the Beatles' greatest hits? <laughs> you want to know something really fucking weird? Did you know that that's my Desert Island CD? I swear to God. Beatles number ones, it's called. That's my yeah. Desert Island CD. Wow. Did you know that about me? No. Shit. Because you get the whole arc of their career with 23 exactly. songs. Wow. Brothers. Brothers in arms. Amazing. Nobody else has ever said that. I've asked this question a thousand times. These five questions. What do I win? Nothing. Third question, dead dinner date. Somebody you'd like to have dinner with that's dead. It cannot be a family member. So you can't say like your great-grandfather. Language is no barrier. And it can be from any century. And you can pick the time period of their life. If you want the young whoever or the old whoever. And they have to be truthful. So whatever question you ask, you're going to get the, a truthful answer. For instance, if it was John F. Kennedy, you might want to ask about Marilyn Monroe or whatever. I think I'd choose FDR. Okay. Good choice. Good answer. I mean, there's no right or wrong answers, and it's not a trick question. Next question, and this, for people with access, it's not really a fair question, but live dinner date. I'm not going to answer. Okay. Nobody's ever said that before. Can you give me a reason why you're not going to answer? Chances are it's a person who listens. Oh. Oh, so it's not... I, I see the road we're on now. I get it. I don't need to it's go girl. on a dinner date with the celebrity. Well, I mean, it's not just celebrity. It's, it's, yeah, yeah. It might be Obama. It could be uh, the person that just won the Nobel Peace Prize. It could be a scientist, that, Francis Collins, who worked on the genome theory or whoever. doesn't have to be a... I'd rather go on the date with the girl. Got it. Okay, well, if you're listening, honey... Pay attention. All right. Final question. Event in history that you would change if you could. Time's up. God, there are so many... So many different things. Why don't you pick something that would change your life? Well, they all would have changed. I want to say nothing because if I say something in particular, it will change my life and I enjoy the life I have. Yeah, I was going to also add, keeping in mind that there'd be a domino effect, which you'd have to ignore in your answer. I'd like to have not crashed the e-scooter two weeks ago. Okay, fine. Go selfish. It's okay. That's my answer. All right. said any of that. I did. I did. You can answer whatever you want. I always have to say with the dead dinner date, no family members, because most people would want to pick a relative, I think. Yeah. You know, like a great father or something. Tell me, what was my grandfather like? Or what was my, you know. Anyway, great. This has been great. Yeah. So before we do close really quickly, I want to go to the last segment called the PowerPoints. Looking through your entire life, now that we've gone from David Foster, the child, to David Foster, the uh, world-renowned producer, what are three takeaways, three pieces of advice, or three bullet points from this conversation our audience should take away? All right. One, good is the enemy of great. 
And that is the truest thing that you will ever hear out of my mouth. And if you want me to expound just slightly on it, for people like me and many people watching, and perhaps you too, being good is so easy. It's so easy to wake up and be good. It's so hard to wake up and be great. And I've tried ever since a thing that happened to me, I've tried to be great every day in my music making, in my job. And I fail 99 times out of 100. But I'm always trying to shoot for great. Would you share that one thing that made you change that mindset? Absolutely. I have a person that I respect greatly named Quincy Jones, record producer, songwriter. Of course. I produced an album in the early 80s. And I was excited to give it to him because it was when I was first starting to produce. And he was my mentor. And I gave it to him. And as I gave him the CD, I said, okay, Quincy, uh, don't play track number two because it's, you know, the song's not very good. I let them just put the song on the right. Track three is great. Track number four, skip over that one because the vocal's out of tune. And, blah, blah. and I made excuses. And he grabbed the CD like this. And he said, what does it say right there? Produced by David Foster. He says, yeah, produced by David Foster. You're a fucking idiot. You put your name on it. And then you hand it to me and make excuses. That's the story. Wow. Such great, such great advice. Yeah, definitely. Good is the enemy of great. Next, retreat and attack in another direction. So when I stopped having top 40 hits around the year 2000, what happens to people, however old I was then, 49, you know, it just runs out because the new generation comes in and you can't think like a 16-year-old. It's just human nature. But a lot of people, when it happens to them, they just keep banging away at this brick wall. And it's never, they're never going to get through it. They're never going to get through to the other side and have a hit record. So I say retreat and attack in another direction. And so in the year 2000, I retreated. I hooked up with Michael Bublé. I hooked up with Josh Groban. I hooked up with Andre Bocelli. And we didn't have top 40 hits, but we sold a shitload of CDs, more than the people that were having top 40 hits. And television became our radio. Michael Bublé, we'd do a record. He'd go on the Today Show, and he'd sell like 100,000 albums that week from being on the Today Show. So television became our radio. So retreat and attack in another direction. Go around the wall and try it from another angle. And thirdly, move the goalpost. I mean, I know I can't tell you how many people I know that are satisfied with the goal they set when they were 15. And I mean, I guess we shouldn't slag them for it because that works for some people. You know, I mean, there's something to be said for working a job that pays the bills you come home at 4.30 and you don't think about the job until ne- the next morning at 7.30. I mean, there's something to be said about that. And that's, by some accounts, how America's run. What keeps America running? What keeps the clocks and the trains running? So I can't, certainly can't slag it. But um, if you're wanting more than that, you better keep moving your goalpost. 